excited to continue on looking at the life of Abraham. And so to give us a little bit of a recap before we move forward, last week we were in chapter 14, and last week was a chapter of war. So you have this group of kings who rebel against a big king, and the big king comes down and says, I'm going to show you what happens when you rebel against me, and it doesn't go well. They get The whole region gets defeated again, and we find out that Abraham's nephew, Lot, has been living in this area and gets captured by this group of kings that comes through. Abraham finds this out. He goes on the move. He chases them down like 120 miles, goes to war, wins these people back. And as Abraham is coming back, he gets a little bit of a spiritual test. Two two kings come to him representing two very different worldviews and Abraham passes this test. And so when chapter 14 ends, everything is on a high. Abraham's just been victorious physically. He's been victorious spiritually. And when we open up in chapter 15, we find a very different landscape. I don't don't really know what happens. We don't know. All we know is that when God comes to Abraham at the start of chapter 15, Abraham is struggling. And I love that chapter 15 of Genesis is in the Bible because what it shows us is that people of faith have moments of difficulty. It shows us that people of faith have moments of doubt. And even though God has come through for Abraham in the past, it does not mean it's easy for him to believe his promises for the future. And the reason that I'm grateful this is in the Bible is that this is real life. And I'm I'm struck by the timeliness of this passage, partially for our community, but as, as we're thinking about why is Abraham struggling, it's probably that God has promised him a son and he still does not have a son. He's experienced all this victory and he's like, God, I don't understand. You told me, you made these promises to me and yet things are going well, but the thing I want most, I don't have. And, you know, I've been reading the Bible for 10, 15 years. And as I come to passages like this in the phase of being a young father, things are different. Because reading the Bible as a 15-year-old, even reading the Bible as a 25-year-old, not thinking about kids, as a guy in particular, you have no idea how difficult it is for people to get pregnant, keep the baby, and have a healthy child. It's just not something that I ever thought about. And then we got into that phase of life, and now it's like, oh, this junk is really hard. And there is loss all the time. Like some of our best friends, they live two minutes from here, this week, had to have a DNC because they lost a baby. And so as I'm, as I'm thinking about this passage and thinking about the loss that I've experienced, and I know you have experienced, what's going to be helpful for us is that as we look at these pages today, what we're going to see is a God who meets us in our struggle. And I don't know about you, but when I open up the Bible, I tend to open it through the lens of, hey, God, tell me something to do. I'm here, I'm carving out time to spend with you. So would you just give me one super clear thing that I need to go do today? And if it rhymes, that's even better. And what I think can happen is that if we approach the Bible that way, 
there are times that we can actually miss what God is trying to teach us about himself. And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to see, we're going to learn about this God. And what I love is that this chapter is known for Abraham's response of faith. But what we're going to focus on is all the things that make God worthy of our faith and trust that we're going to see in this passage. So we're going to be in Genesis 15. Let's start in verse one. It says this, Sometime later, you got to love the specifics. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. So just make some, like learn some things through, like imply some things from this. God's not going to come to Abraham and say, do not be afraid unless he's afraid. So Abraham is off on his own, afraid. Some time has passed and notice it's God who comes to him. You you don't say, hey, don't be afraid unless you're afraid of something. So what's he afraid of? He's probably afraid that the kings that he's defeated are gonna come and try to take back what he's taken. Maybe he's concerned, like he said no to a like probably generational wealth when he passed on what the king of Sodom offered him. He's potentially concerned about that. And and regardless of why he's afraid, notice that God knows and moves towards him. And so the first thing we see is that God knows and God cares about what we're thinking and feeling. So when you are struggling, when you're in a difficult moment, whether it is your fault or not, God knows and cares about what you're thinking and feeling. Because look at what he promises. He promises protection. So if he's afraid of these kings coming to fight against him, God says, hey, that that is a legitimate thing for you to be concerned about. But what I'm telling you is that you don't need to be afraid of another battle because even if they come to fight against you, I'm with you and I'm gonna protect you. And notice that he talks about reward. So if if he's concerned about provision, God's saying, hey, Don't worry about or even regret what you've passed on. What you need most, I'm going to provide for you. And so God's remedy for Abraham's fear was to remind him of the promises he's already made to him. And I think what's helpful for us, and and Kalok actually alluded to this, is that in moments of difficulty, if we turn inward, it's only gonna get worse. When we're struggling, if we look to ourselves to be the source of getting out of our doubt or fears or questions, More often than not, those doubts and fears and questions are only going to increase because we are not a worthy enough source to get us out of those situations of struggle. So here's what I want to do this morning. I know that what's interesting is I look at this room and there's a really awesome cross-section of ages and generations. And so what I know is that different generations tend to deal with emotions and feelings differently. But it's important for us that we pause and consider what we do with our emotions, because if we don't, we aren't gonna ultimately let God be the one who's in control of what we think and feel. So let's just think about two typical ways that I see us respond when our emotions are heightened. Okay, the first is that we surrender to or embrace fully our emotions, right? Culturally, we live in a world that says, you are what you feel. The most true thing about you is what you think or feel. And to deny that would be to deny who you are. And here's the thing. I don't know about you, but that feels really dangerous 
Because if I, if the most true version of me was the certain moments of what I think and feel, it would not be good. And I think if you were honest, you would probably say the same thing. And here's what happens when we surrender to our emotions and we let those be the things that drive us and we never pause to to question them, that becomes the thing that drives us and tells us what to do. And here's what I've learned. Emotions are not supposed to be the engine that fuels us and drives us. Emotions are ultimately supposed to be warnings on our dashboard to tell us what's going on. Not even to necessarily tell us what's going wrong, but to tell us what's going on. And if we don't pause to consider that, what ultimately happens is that our emotions become the driving force of our life. All right, so that's the first response I see. Another response I see, and and I'll I'll just call it how I see it. This typically happens in older generations, so like boomers up and guys in particular, you suppress or deny what you're thinking and feeling. And if we're being honest, here's what happens is that like a lot of like my generation grew up with dads who wanted to do that. And then now our dads are like way more emotional than, yeah, anyways, we were at a comedian, saw a comedian last night and that's what he's talking about. He's like, now my dad cries about everything and I used to get whipped for crying. So it's real confusing. I was like, oh, that's true. So here's what happens. I, I, I see people, and I think the intention is good, right? We say, hey, I don't want my life to be dominated my, by my feelings, so I'm just going to press them so far down that I don't even acknowledge them. And here's what happens. If feelings are supposed to be dashboard lights to us, what happens if you just go driving and your dashboard is off? Eventually, something's going to go wrong. Because if the little chin, change engine oil light doesn't come on, you might not change the oil right? Whatever it is, you get a flat tire, you don't know, right? If you don't know what's going on in your vehicle, you will eventually have a breakdown. And I think the same thing is true for us emotionally. And the reason that I think it's important for us to pause and acknowledge this is the only way we get this right. The better option is for us to identify and recognize our emotions so that we can ultimately turn to, listen to, and to submit to what God says. Because if you think about Abraham, God says, hey, I know you are afraid, right? There's no, there's no wiping away, hey, you're afraid. He says, no, no, I know you're afraid, but can you trust me to protect you and provide for you? Right, when, when you're lonely, it's okay to acknowledge I feel lonely and then remember that God says that he's with you always and that he's never gonna leave you or forsake you. Right, in moments that are dark, you think about what he says in Psalm 23 where he says, I'm your shepherd, and in your darkest moments, I am with you, and my rod and staff will comfort you. It's only by acknowledging what we think and feel that we can ultimately take that to God and receive what he says instead. And it's why it's so fascinating that chapter 15 is a chapter all about emotions when chapter 14 was all about actions. It's not on accident. That's why we have to see what is Abraham struggling with. And he's struggling internally. Because look at what he says in verse 2. Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Just, I mean, just feel that. 
He's like, hey, God, I know what you're promising me, but the thing I want most, you're not giving me. So look at how God responds. I love this. It says, then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will, who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Right? I, I love like imagining that I could like watch these moments play out in the Bible because if you're there, you're kind of watching this happen and you imagine like God's like, hey, I got you. Abraham's like, no, you don't. The thing I want, you haven't given me. And you're kind of like, oh, okay. it's uncomfortable, right? Like, can he say that? How's God going to respond, right? Like, and I think that if we're honest, when we think about our lives and moments like this, we, we don't expect God to respond the way that he does to Abraham. We're afraid that if we're honest with God about what we're struggling with, that somehow to ask a question of him and to ask for some clarity is somehow questioning who he is. Now, let, let me be clear. We can do things in such a way where we do disrespect him and undercut him. But to say, God, I don't understand why this are, is happening. I don't understand why you would give me this desire and then not let it be fulfilled. It's not a bad thing for us to turn to him and ask him. And what I love, I see three things that, about how God responds to Abraham that should encourage us in these moments. The first is that God can handle it, right? God, God is not somehow caught off guard by Abraham's doubts and fears. God can handle this. He expects us to come to him. And here's the thing, you guys, we already know that he knew what Abraham was thinking and feeling before he said anything. So why wouldn't we just say it? Why wouldn't we come to God and say, God, I do not understand. God, why in the world would you allow this to happen? It's okay. God can handle it. The second thing I love is that God doesn't rebuke Abraham. He reassures Abraham. Like, like just, just, just think about that for a moment. You expect him to get smacked on the hand with a spanky spoon, maybe? If you are here last week, you know. That's what you expect God to do to Abraham, but that's not what happens. He says, no. He doesn't say, hey, no, dummy, I made the promise. He says, no, I know what you're thinking. No, that's not what's going on. You are going to have a son. And then what I love is that God responds tenderly. You see the love, you see the affection, you see the tender care. Because as I picture this, again, and I'm, I'm making this up a little bit, but it does say that he took him outside, which probably means that he's in his tent. And it feels like what God does is, Evan, can you put this picture up? Can you put the next? Yeah, okay. So that's my little girl. She's so cute. Uh, we were at the Apple Orchard a couple weeks ago, and I was scrolling through my phone this week as I was working on this. And one, I just was distracted because um, she's cute. But <clears throat> what I picture is that this is what God does for Abraham is he says, hey, let me show you. Like you're inside the tent and it feels like God takes him by the hand like a tender, loving father and walks him outside. He says, hey, look up. Look at all those stars that you couldn't count if you wanted to. That's how many descendants you're gonna have, right? That's a picture of who our God is. And so I was... I was thinking about what this looks like on an earthly level. And it reminded me of a time in high school where um, 
was a very, very normal teenage boy. And there was a string of time where I missed curfew a lot. Okay? Teenage boys, I'm not saying, I'm, giving, I'm not giving you permission to do this. I'm just acknowledging what happened, right? Got you. Don't worry. But there was one day in particular, I had missed curfew a lot. And um, I was dating a girl in Greenville at the time. And I'd been over at her house. She had dumped me. And I had spent hours just trying to win her back. And God in his grace did not allow that to happen. Okay? Praise God. But at the time, I wouldn't have agreed with that. And so I'm, I get home so late from curfew. Like I'm talking about leaving Greenville long after I was supposed to be home late from curfew. It's not the first time. And I remember coming upstairs and my dad is sitting there, you know, in the chair with the one light on. You, like, like the chuckles mean, you know, okay? You know, like you, I'm like, okay, it's going to happen. It needs to happen. Expecting to be rebuked, to be told, hey, what are you doing? How many times have you been late? And I remember just breaking down and telling my dad what had happened. And he just responded in a way that I never would have expected. I remember him coming and making me sit down beside him on the couch and him walking me through times that he had experienced heartbreak. And instead of condemning me and instead of rebuking me, he put his arm around me and dealt with me like only a father could. And what happened is that from that point forward, I knew that I did not want to get around my father. I knew that when, when I was struggling, I wanted to turn to my father. And what we see in this story is the same principle, is that when we see who our God is and how he responds to Abraham, it should make us want to go to him when times are difficult because he is going to respond to us in a way that only he can. And so just like it had that effect on me, it has the same effect on Abraham. Look at verse six. It says, and Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So, so this is the verse that this chapter is known for. Some, some people I was reading this week said, this is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. Because ultimately what, what happens here, there, there's so much here that like Paul quotes it three times and at length, right? He has so much to say about it. And here's what's so crazy is that it says that it is because of Abraham's belief that God counts him right. Like, like if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we know Abraham is not perfect and he does not become perfect overnight. It is him choosing to put his faith and trust in God that makes him right with God. And what it says is that Abraham believed. Okay. So like literally what that means is basically Abraham says, amen. So God's like, Hey, this is what's going to be true. And Abraham says, amen. As you said, it is so. But when you look at what that word believe really gets at, what it means is for us to put all of our weight on it. Like the idea would be instead of that you are believing the Lord, it's that you're believing into, that you're putting all of your weight into God and trusting him, right? Like a way I think that we would say is he's putting all his eggs in that basket. And so it does make us ask the question, what are you leaning your whole weight upon and hoping it's going to hold you up. Because if it's anything of this world, it's going to fall through eventually. 
And then I love that it says it was counted to him as righteous. It just shows us that, again, he doesn't earn it, that God looks at his faith. And in response to Abraham's faith, God says, hey, you have, you have credited, I'm crediting righteousness to you, right? Like you think about why this is so important to us is because for those of us who have believed in Jesus, ultimately it's that righteousness that we're talking about. That when we put our hope and faith in Jesus, all of the, his perfect life, all the things he did to measure up in the way that we couldn't, all of that is put in our spiritual bank account, right? That, that's, there's so much good news here about what faith in God does. And here, here's, here's what this means for us. It's that God counts us righteous based on who he is and what he's done, not who we are and what we do. And that's the, that's the best news out there. Because if we got what we deserved on our best day, it wouldn't be great. So we're made, we're made right with God because of what he has done, not what we do. We're made right with God, check this out, based on promises he makes to us, not promises we make to him about how we're gonna be better. And we're made right with him, not by what we do, but putting our faith in what he's done. It really is the good news. It's the best news. And again, the reason I love this chapter is that Abraham still struggles. So he has this moment, God, I'm struggling. God comes to him. He believes in him. And then he continues to struggle. Look at verse seven. It says, then the Lord told him, hey, not only am I gonna give you all of these descendants, but I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your special possession, right? So not just people of a promise, but also the land is a promise. And Abraham replies, this is verse eight, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I'll actually possess it? Can't can you like, can you not feel that? Like, how can I be certain that like I'm actually gonna get it? Right, like I just, I just resonate with this so deeply. And look at what God does. It says, the Lord told him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, so Abraham presented all of these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abraham chased them away. All right, so let me, let me explain all of what's going on right there because you're like, what, what are you talking about? That's a really weird thing to do and say. I hear you, okay? So, what Abraham is basically saying is, God, I believe what you're saying, but I need you to help me where I have doubts and unbelief. And so what I want us to see before we, before we dig into what's happening is that God helps us in our unbelief. God helps us in our unbelief. And here's how he does this. So what he does is he goes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. See, covenants and the way that Abraham does it are very standard practice in Abraham's day and age. And so what would happen is that you would take animals and you would kill them and you would cut them in half. I know. The other day we were driving by a meat shop and I was like, oh, look at that. Okay, cool. Um, and so what, basically you're laying out, it's like half of the animal, half of the animal, half of the animal, and then it's like one bird on one side, one bird on the other, right? We got a picture. It looks a lot like how our chairs are set up, Right. And what would happen is that two parties would talk 
about basically, hey, this is what we are agreeing to. And then we're going to walk between these animals and we are going to say, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, what happened to them should happen to me. Right? Like, like since the severity of the oath you're taking, right? And the difference between a covenant and a contract, they're very similar. It's that the difference between that is if you break a covenant, there's a degree to which no matter if you can come to good exit terms, it's never morally permissible for you to break them. Whereas in a contract, you come to terms and if you decide you want out of the deal, you come back to terms and it's okay. And so what God does is he says, I'm going to make that kind of a covenant with you. So just think about this. God, who cannot lie, comes to you and says, I'm making a promise to you. And then just take it a step further. The consequences for breaking a covenant are basically deaths. God can't lie, but God also can't die. So you know, if you're Abraham, okay, I have assurance here. And that's what God is giving him. God is giving him assurance. So he initiates the covenant and then he continues to help Abraham in his unbelief. Look at at verse 12, it says this. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will inherit the land. No, that's not what he says. Look at what he says. Your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried in a ripe old age. After four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. So notice what God does. He says, okay, so I'm making a covenant with you, but I'm also gonna tell you so many details that you recognize that I'm telling you the truth, right? Because for whatever reason, for you and I, details give us added assurance which is also apparently why if somebody wants to lie, they try to give you too many details until it all falls apart, right? Like, I don't know about you, I'm a really bad liar. You can ask Lauren. But God gives him details here to say, like, I'm I'm telling you everything. Like God could have just said, hey, your people are gonna possess this land and that would have been okay. But he's like, no, let me tell you everything so that you know I'm telling you the truth. And then what God does next is he takes it to the next level in a way that only he can. Verse 17, it says, after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I've given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. So don't miss this. Don't miss what happens. God makes a one-sided, unconditional covenant with Abraham. He doesn't even let Abraham walk between Right? It's God who passes between these animals and it's God's way of saying, hey, just so that we're clear, these promises have nothing to do with you. Even though you're gonna fail, I'm not gonna fail. And so I'm making this promise to you. I'm making this covenant with you. Right? It's this idea that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And so you take all this into account, right? Abraham is struggling all along the way and God meets him. God knows what's going on. God cares for him. And then God makes a covenant with him. And here's what's so cool. Is it, I, I, the, the, somebody was kind of asking this question of one of the guys I was reading was like, would it be possible 
for God to make any more of a commitment to Abraham or to his people than to not only make a covenant, but make it in a one-sided way. And he does. Because think about this, God's gonna continue to make covenants with his people. And what he's gonna say is that there are going to be curses that come on you for breaking the law and breaking the covenant. And what does he do? He not only makes the covenant, but he also sends his son down to take on the curses for the children of Abraham who break the covenant. I mean, like, who would make that deal? That's the worst business move in the whole world. All right, we're going to enter into this arrangement. I'm going to pay my side, and then I'm going to fulfill all the goods and services you're going to provide me? Horrible business idea. That would never work. And yet that is what God does through Jesus. He comes and it says that he took the curses on himself. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And that's why he is a God who is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise.